Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm David Rowe. Does defence industry need to embrace disruption and faster decision times in the style of Silicon Valley? One of the most sought-after US thinkers on defence acquisition, Dr Bill Greenwalt of the American Enterprise Institute, certainly thinks so. He speaks with ASPE's Beck Shrimpton about Australia-US industry and tech collaboration and about how to stay ahead in the innovation race that lies at the heart of today's strategic competition. I'm talking today to Dr. Bill Greenwalt. Bill, welcome to Australia and welcome to the Aspie podcast. Thank you, Beck. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Um, We have Bill in Australia at the moment, continuing a long line of research on Australia-US cooperation. He is here supporting uh, our work for the American Enterprise Institute, where he is a non-resident senior fellow. But really, um, the focus of Bill's work over many decades in different guises has been on looking at America's defence industrial base and defence management issues. He has focused in on technology transfer reform, defence acquisition and procurement reform and technology policy and innovation. He's the founder, importantly, of the Silicon Valley Defence Group and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But what Bill's tried to do in, in much of his work is bring a different way of thinking to the way defence does business, um, to the benefit of defence to policy as well as to the defence industry itself. Bill served in senior positions at the Department of Defence, in Congress and in industry himself. So I could not find a better person today to have the conversation that I want to and that it's really pertinent. Uh, The strategic circumstances at the moment are really bringing into stark relief a lot of the work that you've done, Bill. So I think um, it's really important timing for us in Australia as well with the Defence Strategic Review. We are looking at how we develop capability, what capabilities we need, and do we have the processes and procedures in place to support our Australian Defence Force. So let's come to to the broader framing of this sort of techno-economic competition and its implications for defence. And I'd like to start by presenting you with a little quote from Mike Brown from a piece that he co-wrote with uh, Eric Tuning and, and Pafnet Singh. The quote is, while this competition has many dimensions, political, military, diplomatic and ideological, the crux of the competition is geoeconomic. The key to the economic competition is technology and innovation, which has significant implications for future military advantage as well as commercial prosperity. Investment in long-term research and technology development will have a large spillover effect for the economy, creating new industries, companies and jobs, just as we saw with the space race in an earlier generation. Bill, can you talk to us about the history of US innovation and the system that supported it, where we've started and, and where we are today? Happy to do that. And, and, and frankly, my interpretation of that history is that a long, long time ago, post-World War II era, but actually based on a number of the things that we did in World War II uh, that, and lasted to about the 50s and 60s, the United States had unwittingly figured out the uh, keys to the innovation kingdom. And they were based on uh, rapid prototyping, operational uh, back and forth with uh, uh, the user's uh, recommendations, and in a focus on time as the dr- dramatic, compelling driver of innovation. And with that, 
some amazing technologies were created. Uh, not just the ICBM programs, but the nuclear submarine programs, the reconnaissance satellite programs, uh, all capabilities that were produced in less than a few years. And then sometime in the 60s, 70s, and uh, uh, we, we lost our way. And uh, we, in, in, a, in a very step-by-step process, destroyed that system. And created essentially a system that uh, mirrored our adversary at the time. Uh, it was linear. It was uh, a, a very compliance-oriented five-year plan, uh, step-by-step process uh, that, uh, frankly, ended up driving out much of the innovation uh, uh, that that occurred in, in in the 40s and 50s. And so, in this new economic competition. We need to go back to that old way of doing business because, frankly, we have a Soviet-style model. If the Chinese have adopted that Soviet-style model, maybe we can compete. But if they haven't, we're, we're, we're might be in a world of hurt. So you've written um, extensively and thoughtfully on, on the relationship between the budget process and military procurement and, and specifically on that budgeting system that grew out of the McNamara era. And, and you've, you've talked about how that makes defence acquisition um, so cumbersome and expensive um, and therefore it has, you know, that knock-on effect to, to killing off innovation. I commend to listeners a, a report that you published um, with uh, Dan Patch, a former, a former DARPA person from February 2021, competing in time, ensuring capability advantage and mission success through adaptable resource allocation. Um, before we get into some of your recommendations and some of the mechanisms that, that have, in fact, been adopted and that have been proven to work and also what's left to do, I want to come back to this idea you've got of time versus process and link that, I guess, to what we're seeing China do. So you just said China, you know, China is working really quickly and they have not adopted the Soviet-style system of, of capability development. So can, can we look at what, what you spoke about yeah. in, that, in that report and your thoughts around the link between budget um, acquisition and innovation and bring that back to time? How do we, how do we get back to that essence of time? So, so the key thing uh, about time and probably the, one of the major differences between DOD Defense Innovation System of the 1950s and, and today is a decision time of less than a year to start a program and start moving uh, in, 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 in a way to validate and demonstrate uh, operational technology. Uh, that less than a year decision time now equates to something like three years in determining what a requirement should be and, and what the technology is out there, and then three years to lay in, lay in the budget approval process. And then once you get the budget, after six or so years, uh, it's a two-year contracting process. So there's an eight-year decision time where you actually decide on what it is you're going to do and get a contractor on board to do such a thing. The reality is technology has changed under Moore's law three times during that period. And in any all technology, it's, it's moving. So we have to get our decision time faster. And then there's a time frame in actually implementing that uh, and and our process takes fifteen to twenty years to actually deliver a precise, predictable type of technology. 
That's not the way it used to be. We used to get things in the hand of the warfighter fast, work around, make changes, and, and move on. There's another actor or set of actors that are moving quickly, and, and they are uh, not necessarily in China. In fact, thankfully, they're a lot in the United States, and they are trying to break the model, and they're trying to, to sort of crack this time conundrum. Can you talk a little bit to what you see from companies yeah. like SpaceX, Palantir, Angel, for example? Why is what they're doing different and how are they doing it? So these commercial actors and, and you know, that are in the industry and that are focused on defence are doing something very interesting, aren't they? Yes. No, and, and I think they derive from a culture that, frankly, goes back to that experimentation prototyping culture that, frankly, was the U.S. government in the 50s. Silicon Valley evolved from that. Uh, now, it didn't evolve directly. There were a number of other areas where it took advantage of uh, the, the time and, and place of the area in California and so on. But it, 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 is, it directly does evolve uh, uh, from that defense. So, so what, 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 what are those new non-traditional companies doing that's, that's different? Well, they're focusing on two things, how to disrupt existing technology. So if you look at somebody like uh, SpaceX, they disrupted space launch. How? By focusing on how can we do things cheaper? And frankly, they developed something like the Falcon 9 at 10% the cost of uh, uh, what uh, the traditional defense Soviet-style process does. And they were successful at it. And uh, then, but also not just disrupting in a cost standpoint, they wanted to disrupt in a operational productivity standpoint. And they did because the price of um, launching matter into space is, is now 10 times cheaper. So you've got 10x productivity at 10% of the cost. And you think, wow, that's, that, you know, what, what is that's so unique? No, that's the way Silicon Valley thinks. That's the way the venture capital world thinks. And every single portion of the defense industrial base could be disrupted by those type of actors if, if they were brought into the, uh, the system. That's what we need to do. That's what the advantage we have over China. We have a system that looks at 10x, 10, 10, uh, 10%. But if we don't use it, and we compete in China in the in the plotting uh, Soviet style manner, you know we're we're, we're, we're it's just not going to work. You've been instrumental in creating mechanisms, um, you know, in, in the absence of of being able to whole scale reform the system. Even though you've had excellent recommendations for that, and perhaps we will have time to talk to that. But you've created mechanisms like the the other transaction authority um, that have enabled. Uh, some of the more innovative parts of the of the defence system to uh, to bring in non traditionals on a, on a much smaller scale, of course, yeah. and they haven't not you know, not all of them have had the journey to success that SpaceX and and others have. But can you talk about why you did that, how you did that, and and is that applicable in Australia? Sure, sure. I was fortunate enough to work for the Senator, Senator John McCain uh, when he was uh, chairman of the Armed Services Committee. And, you know, one thing, if you can have great ideas, but if you don't have uh, great people that are willing to take a, take a, uh, to implement those ideas, uh, and that's what I, I had. So the, the other transactions process is a way of, of a work around the contracting process. When I, when I talked about a two-year contracting process, that is the process it takes if you adhere to all of the step-by-step -step and, and, and other uh, laws of, of, of that, that, that you have to comply with. 
Other transactions essentially is a commercial way of doing business, commercial contracting, a, a way of sitting down with your vendor and figuring out what, uh, what it is you want to do. The Falcon 9, SpaceX launch vehicles were all operated that way, as was the COVID-19 uh, vaccine in the United States used another transactions model based on what, what Senator McCain put in, into law. And essentially what we have now is a workaround acquisition process from development to production that, that operates in a, in a commercial way. The other thing that was important was the development of what's called mid-tier authority. And that is a time-based acquisition authority that essentially allows the Department of Defense to have an alternative pathway around the traditional 15 or 20 year process to deploy capability to the warfighter in three to five years, either as an operational uh, prototype or as a fielded system. And, and what were the two models we were looking at? We wanted to do the same thing in the operational prototype as what the NRO did in its first satellites and mirror that process. And we also wanted to mirror the NRAP process. So there are two types of of, uh, and the MRAP is the mine-resistant armor protection, protection vehicle that uh, was deployed in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those two processes allow the department to get technology to the warfighter faster. Combined with another transaction, you can limit the amount of time uh, available. But then there are some other barriers that, that keep this from being completely uh, uh, used in, in, the, in the most efficient manner. I'd like to now turn to to another piece, and and for listeners, I will make sure that um, in the episode notes you have access to the articles that I am referring to. This one, Bill, by done entirely authored by yourself, leveraging the national technology industrial base to address great power competition. Um, in this was a really important piece of work, and it was I was in the US working for Defence in the Embassy at the time that this came through, and there was enormous optimism around what this would mean and, and what would eventuate and the opportunities that this would open up for, you know, true integration of our technology and industrial bases. It hasn't quite worked out um, that way, of course, but um, I wonder if you could talk to, you know, why why you went this way. What was the argument for NTIB? And then maybe we'll get to this as a second part of the question, but I'd, I'd really love to talk about what we need to address, and I think what's at the heart of what's preventing uh, this from being more successful or, or wholly successful in terms of um, export regime. But let's start with, you know, why? Why, why did you do this? What was the intent? It, it, this, the NTIB was part of the McCain reforms, it was part of a package of, uh, of trying to get innovation from non-traditional defence contractors, in other words, Silicon Valley, and, and then from our allies. And so if you look at other transactions in mid-tier, that was designed to, to go faster and, and to bring in non-traditionals. As I mentioned at the end, the budget process still needs to reform to, to, to do that. But with our allies, the idea was we are a country of 350 million people. Uh, uh, we are a fourth of the population of China, our, our, our greatest adversary. We need to figure out a way of leveraging uh, our comparative advantages. And again, one is the innovation system that we used to have, and the other is the fact that we have allies. And so we need to sit down and, 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 and figure out how to remove the barriers to working together and leverage all of the engineers, uh, all of the, the, the firms that are, that are working in, in, in that alliance. So the first step was we, we knew we had some barriers. 
The biggest barrier is, is, is our tech transfer system that we developed in the, in the 1970s in the United States. And we figured, let's start with our closest allies, uh, relatable to the, uh, uh, the Five Eyes intelligence uh, 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 arrangement. And, and since we trust them with certain uh, intelligence secrets, we should be able to trust them uh, and, and, and create a, a system that eases the transfer of uh, basically unclassified technology for systems built in the 1970s and 80s. And that essentially is, is, is Entiv. The idea is let's create a forum uh, with our closest allies and, 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 and create the mechanisms for reform in all of the areas that we need to cooperate to create that system. And then once that happens, in a concentric circle way, start adding additional allies to that till we get to the point where we, we are a billion strong. Well, we're not quite there yet, and we can talk about why that, that didn't happen. I think it is uh, it is really important to talk about why that hasn't happened, um, um, and potentially there are there are some cases where where we have had success, of course, but you know on on the scale we had imagined and and the vision behind NTIB we haven't, and that is of course that NTIB did not relieve the US or or anybody else uh, from its obligations under the export control regime, um, and particularly we talk a lot about. ITAR, the International Trafficking in Arms Regime. Well, it seems that we need to have a, have a philosophical look at, at what lies at the heart of that system currently, and that, that seems to be non-discrimination. Um, and do we need to move towards uh, positive discrimination or a different concept entirely, yeah. perhaps based on, on transparency? Like what's the problem? What's the nub of the problem and how do, how do we get past it? I, I think the the problem is the legacy of historical success. In other words, the United States, at the time that this regime was created, was at the top of its game, was technologically dominant, dominated all aspects of uh, of technology, and 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 the and the the idea was to keep this technology from going to the Soviet Union. Um, that world is a long ago fairy tale anymore. And, and with the advent of globalization, with the advent of the rise of commercial technology, which frankly is the major driver of, of military dominance or will be the major driver of military dominance in the future, we have a different world. But we have a system designed on keeping technology from going out under an arms control regime designed to uh, not discriminate against anyone. Uh, matter of fact, to make sure that nothing goes to any, anyone. If it does, it's, it's controlled by uh, our, our, our State Department and uh, with the Department of Defense. Again, the, the circumstances have changed and uh, we have to figure out a, a new way of moving forward. And again, it kind of goes back to acquisition. The system could work we could eventually approve all of the technology transfers and license or whatever with our allies, but it's divorced from time. It takes way too much time to actually have the conversations that are necessary. In the meantime, the Chinese are, are, are moving fast. So now we have a regime that once was designed to protect national security is probably now an, an inhibitor to, to national security. But we also have a, a bureaucracy that still believes in the old way of doing business 
because it hasn't quite come to the uh, uh, ultimate conclusion that the United States is not as dominant as it once was and frankly is falling behind in many, many, many areas. There is um, some work going on in the in the US system to to sort of take back the initiative, if you like, and to identify um, you know particularly particular technologies that the US should dominate. Um, this is this is something of a of a response, I think, to to China's own approach and its own strategy. And there's been a bit of a lag. Um, it, it's a response, but um, for me. Uh, it's still reactive and it's still um, in a way almost saying, oh, you know, look at what China's doing, we'll do the same, which which is a mistake. It misses, it misses uh, you know, taking advantage of those, you know, relative strengths uh, and advantages in, you know, yeah. inherent in our system that you spoke to earlier. But I think what we're talking about here is really making a deliberate decision, not only to sort of restrict trade and investment, tech transfer and R&D, uh, from certain actors, but to create explicit channels for it to work for for trusted communities, right? So we've got two two ideas here. There are some concerns often voiced that this language of competition and and talking about you know China in this way is you know is a negative and it risks escalation. I'd like to posit a different view and perhaps actually talking about things this way and keeping it in in a competition and 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 keeping it in that lane could actually prevent us from spilling into into a hot war as long as we can keep it there um, and probably as long as we also succeed yes. in in achieving some of that dominance but can you offer offer some some thoughts on that yeah um, we we're not going to be able to compete with China by adopting Chinese practices. And, and again, going back to that, we need to work together and we need to figure out what our comparative advantages are. And our comparative advantages are not, do not reside in the traditional defense industry that is essentially a government centrally managed and controlled system of predictive innovation. Uh, that's the Chinese model. That's the Soviet model. But it's a model that we were able to defeat the Soviet Union in because we had a better underlying economy that that uh, that essentially uh, fed into it. So what do we do now? Well, we have to figure out ways of getting our engineers, your engineers in Australia, and in other allies, and working together. But that's just not in the the traditional defense industry because if that's the case, we're 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 not going to succeed. We need to look at those technologies that will be the basis of future dominance. And those advances are in the non-traditional sector who are globalized. And so we all have to get together with our non-traditional sectors and figure out how to work on national security solutions, but also how they're going to make money using their their knowledge in in the commercial sector. There may be uh, a need for discrimination against uh, some of our potential adversaries, including China. Well, that's one level of export controls we can probably agree on. But to, to put the same type of export controls on our, on our allies in, within our uh, allied bubble, bubble is probably not something that's, that's uh, in our best interest. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you on that. 
how about we bring this to 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 AUKUS? I mean, the the, the work that you did and the legislation yeah. um, of of NTIB seemed to really set an excellent platform yeah. from which AUKUS should be enabled. Yet we've spoken to some of the issues about about why that might not be the case. How do we get to success in some key yeah. AUKUS technologies and capabilities? What what's it going to take, and how how do we go about it? There, there's just kind of a multi-level solution, I think, on this. But the first level is we have to cooperate. And the first barrier to that is the United States ITAR system. And we need to figure out a way of ensuring co-development and the operational uh, use of U.S. technology. And, and, uh, and I should say not just U.S. technology, joint technology, because this is going to be joint technology and, and the maintenance of that. We also have to figure out how to incentivize not just uh, the industrial base in Australia and, and in the UK to participate, but it's not, again, it's not the, just the defense traditional, it's, it's the non-traditional uh, uh, industrial base. And U.S. extraterritorial application of export control laws and the, the so-called ITAR taint is not an incentive structure that is going to bring in the most creative and entrepreneurial sectors of all of our economies. We have the same problem in the United States about uh, the, the desire not to be ITARD, and that, that limits the, the types of technology and the types of innovation that goes into our systems. The, the entire ITAR structure needs to be reevaluated and, and, and reformed. But beyond that, let's say we actually have the ability to create a, a free-flowing zone of, within a trusted community of, of uh, industrial partners that's creating new, new military capability. Then it comes down to the acquisition system and, and the decision time and reform of the budget system in, in our countries, a reform of the uh, contracting system to get on contract faster. And then the requirements process that doesn't keep asking for this, this, this mythical uh, system that's somehow going to do everything versus what can be done in the here and now. And again, that's what time-based acquisition is about. What can we get in our warfighters' hands today, tomorrow? the next couple of years. After about five years, it becomes kind of irrelevant for, for the upcoming fight that we might have to consider and deter against to your last point, because if we're not ready, uh, we're not going to deter anybody. But if we're ready, if we're dominant, if we have the capabilities, our adversaries are going to think twice before uh, taking any aggressive stance. And that's what the situation we want to be in as an alliance. Excellent. Talking to to specifics of, of mechanisms, we've um, you know some ideas that have been floated include presidential executive yeah. order to to create a direction, I guess, for for exceptions for AUKUS capabilities. We've talked before about individual pieces of legislation that, that we believe would enjoy uh, support from individual members of Congress, but as you've just sort of said, they can become meaningless if they're not crafted in the right way. And I think, you know, you probably have to go over some of the ground you just did, but making sure that they include that that co-development, that operational deployment, maintenance, you know, the various elements of really building and growing, you know, technology into capability, into operationally fielded kit is is, is where we need to get. And and that's that could be by EO, it could be by legislation, but it has to be it has to be done the right way, right? No, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the devils will be the details, but I believe we have the the uh, you know if, if those particular uh, uh, 
variables that which, which which you described are addressed. But most importantly, the ITAR extraterritorial and ITAR taint has to be addressed because that's the underlying incentive process behind the ability to innovate. And then again, once we get there, then we look at each other's acquisition process. Australia should have uh, an, an, an equivalent of other transactions. It should be looking at how to partner with non-traditionals, both both in Australia and around, uh, you know, the the, the alliance uh, in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere. Uh, it, it needs to focus on on time-based ways of doing business. Each of our countries needs a flexible pot of money that can be pivoted to innovations in year of execution. That's flexible funding. Sometimes that's 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 been looked at as 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 uh, uh, just a slush fund, but it's it's not a slush fund. It's the way we're going to be able to compete and get the right type of, of of innovation online into the warfighters' hands as quickly as possible. I'd like to uh, to finish up with you, um, but just I want to come to a, a, an initiative of yours, and I want you to talk about what it's done um, and how it succeeded, and how perhaps we can we can copy a good idea from the states and not not just import some some of the not so greatest uh, of practices. The Silicon Valley Defence Group. Can you just tell us what that is, why you established it, and and how can we get into that? It 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 actually began in a, uh, a room full of uh, uh, venture capitalists, myself and Senator John McCain. And uh, the senator was looking for how can we bring in uh, new technology in, into the Department of Defense. And uh, I was tasked to, to work with the, the, the VCs at, at, at the time on identifying the barriers to actually bringing in that. And so that became an informal process of uh, the uh, members who eventually also founded uh, the Silicon Valley Defense Group convened a, a grouping of, of as many people as, as possible to help inform the legislation that John McCain did uh, on, on uh, other transactions and other acquisition reforms. Subsequently, as the years went by, uh, we looked at it and said, you know, this, this grouping needs to stay together. Needs to not be an informal uh, grouping. So uh, a, a couple of years ago, we we stood up a, a nonprofit to to uh, uh, essentially bring that same group together and to uh, uh, provide advice and 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 uh, a, a voice of of Silicon Valley uh, and, and 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 to continue to identify all those barriers that. Some 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 have done well. Some some have have not, and, and assess progress as, as as we move forward. So it's a it's a it's a great group. It's a uh, a trusted group. It's a group that essentially cares about defense. Not all Silicon Valley really wants to enter the defense market because of all the problems there, and so it's 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 a grouping that uh, I hope will continue to uh, operate into the future, and provide the U.S. government and and other governments. The, um, the, the, the kind of the, the, the test case of, of what's really going on out there in the market. Fantastic. Bill, great to talk to you today. I think what you've been able to do in, in a really short time is highlight some, some immediate actions that, that we can take, some, some things that have worked. Uh, you've pointed out precisely where some of the barriers are so that we can, we can get after them. So thank you for your, for your time today and, and offering us uh, the benefits of all, all of your knowledge. No, my, my pleasure. As you know, there's still a lot of work to do. I do, I do know that. I hope, we, uh, I hope we continue this conversation and we, uh, we're celebrating some, some more successes in a year or two. Great. Thank you. 
Also today, Aspie's Vari Fotheringham speaks to Shane Huntley, the head of Google's Threat Analysis Group. They discuss Google's recent six-part documentary about the cybersecurity overhaul the company went through after it was hacked by China in 2009 in what became known as Operation Aurora. They also discuss steps that consumers and companies can take to improve their cybersecurity, which in light of recent events in Australia makes for very compelling listening. This week, we are going to be talking about the ever-evolving topic of cybersecurity, hackers and responders. But how do organisations prevent, detect and respond to malicious activities and actors at scale? Well, Google has released its own six-episode documentary series on YouTube titled Hacking Google that follows its complete rehaul of security after being hacked in 2009. Now, I have to say, after binge-watching this show, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Shane Huntley, who is the director of Google's Threat Analysis Group, also known as TAG. Welcome back to the Aspie podcast, Shane. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. So focusing in on the series, it's a six-episode documentary that starts with the realisation Google had been hacked in 2009 and the subsequent mad dash to find out who'd done this, remove them and secure the network from re-entry. The rest of the episodes walk us through the different teams that exist now and their daily activities in keeping Google secure covers the tag team who are identifying threats in real time, the detection and response teams who are the fire department. We've got the red team whose job it is to hack Google and bug hunters around the globe who don't work for Google but get paid to notify Google of bugs. And finally, the zero day team who are looking for holes that can be exploited before the developers know. So before we get into some specific questions, I wanted to ask you what prompted Google to make a series about this topic and be so open about its inner workings? So I think there's a number of reasons too, right? So Aurora really was a key event for the security industry. And it was one of the first times that a company actually went public talking about a hack from China. And it really was the event that shaped what Google is and shaped like how our Google response was and how Google is shaped today with regards to security. So, you know, we've always wanted to tell this story and working out how to tell the story was important, but this seemed like a really good way of doing it to not only highlight what actually happened back in 2009, 2010, but also the teams that came on it and how we actually approach security today. And, you know, there's a number of different sort of like, you know, target audiences here too. There's like people who want to learn about history. There's people who want to learn how we do things. There's also just like this general awareness of, you know, things that don't often reach the public or don't come out in a normal sort of sort of like cycle that allowed us to tell this story that we've been trying to tell for a long time. And I found it really exciting, right? So there's a there's an episode on tag. Um, they put me in front of the camera and I got to tell some stories about different things that had happened over the years, starting from when I joined the company just after Aurora and the hack and when I was pulled from Australia and from Australian intelligence to join this new team and tag up until what we do today, tracking threats. So it was a lot of fun recording this. Um, it's a bit scary watching myself on the screen now, but it was a great experience. Yeah, I have to say, like, it was really interesting to watch. And I really enjoyed the first episode, which kind of laid the groundwork. Um, And I have to say, I was surprised after all of the information that was coming out, sort of indicating that maybe it was connected to Russia for then it to be labeled as China. And so thinking about attribution based on the threat analysis group or your area tag, would you say, what would you say has been the most surprising actor that Google has identified and what exactly made it surprising? 
So I think that over time, what we've seen over the 10 years that, or 12 years that I've been there is we started out with the major players, right, that you'd expect of sort of like China and Russia. But what we've seen evolve over time now is through a number of forces that, you know, this is approachable to anybody who has some smart young people that you're going to put in front of the internet, that you can have a hacking capability. So really every nation on the planet, as far as we can tell almost, is actually having some form out there. Right. So like I'd say there's a couple that have really surprised me. Like I talk one of them in the series, I talk about it, you know, there was a ransomware operator. It looked like it was like there for money, but the wanna cry, we were able to attribute that it was actually North Korea. And, you know, that was a surprise to us. I think again, you know, on the North Korean side of stuff we've also seen the like hacking of security researchers that tag talked about last year again north korean government but probably the biggest surprise to everyone was actually in the 2020 election cycle where there was actually these threatening messages being sent to you know u.s citizens in at the time in the primaries and it was like pretending to be the proud boys this like far-right organization sending threatening messages and i was actually you know, working this like at, at night investigating this. And at the same time, I was also investigating a separate tip from Iran. And I found these two investigations happening in these two windows. And then suddenly it clicks that these two things were actually connected. And this was actually the Iranian government pretending to be a far right group in the US doing voter intimidation. And we we're about to go public with that. And then, you know, the FBI went public on the same same thing. So there really is surprises in this business. And, you know, there's the occasional false flag operation. Most of the time, though, attribution is not that hard. And one of the things we see is we can actually look at the broad activity of a group. And when you look at who they're targeting, you can make a pretty good guess, right? Like, you know, you look at all the activity, if a group is targeting solely political activists and dissidents, targeting, you know, of a particular oppressive regime, chances are it's probably that repressive regime. If it's targeting, you know, the military of someone they're currently at war with and they're doing it exactly in time with their military operations, you can make a pretty good guess. But in other cases, we really do get that smoking gun and know exactly who's behind an operation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess this is something that is uh, prevalent throughout all of our interactions with the internet is that you can obscure who you are and you can sort of um, say that you are someone else. So what you're saying is that attribution might not necessarily be too hard. You have to look beyond just what they're declaring as being their nationality or, or their affiliation. One of the things that I found really interesting was that in episode one, it details that Google will place a warning banner if it has identified that you are tried to be attacked by a, a nation state. Does Google offer any other advice for users of how to increase their security posture? They might be surprised to see that they are being uh, targeted by a nation state. Sure, yeah. I, um, I came up with this warning about 10 years ago, actually, and it's been a relatively successful product. Um, and people are surprised, actually, how many of these warnings we give out. Like last year, it was like over 40,000 users were warned in some way that they were target of government-backed phishing. So some people think these government-backed attacks are these super rare things, but they literally are, for my team, a day-to-day -day existence of seeing users being targeted by these threats. So there's, you know, a couple of things. If you get one of these warnings, it's mostly telling you this 
is the stuff that we know about and we've detected. So it's not an immediate call that you have to do something or you're hacked. It's, the, it's a sign that you've been targeted, not compromised. But it should be a wake-up call to really do the basics of security and to think about the higher levels of security programs you can sign up for. We have something called advanced protection, which, you know, is security keys, turns up the security protections. But it also should be like a wake-up call around the rest of your life as well, not just your Google account, but like, am I reusing passwords in different places? Am I using silly passwords? Have I got some old device that I haven't installed the updates on? Like really thinking about that sort of like all the places that you have threats. And that's one of the reasons this is a fairly generic warning. It's not about a specific product recommendation. It really was always designed all the way when I came up with this as trying to be some sort of wake up call to say, okay, like we've seen you targeted you know, we've taken care of this one, but think about the next one. And this might be a good time to like take a moment and prepare. And that's what we're saying. We want people to prepare. We want people to believe that they have some agency here too. But just because you're the target doesn't mean all is lost. There is things that users can do. There's things that we can do. Like nothing is perfect, but you can do something here. Yeah. Based on Google's sort of advanced um, protection program, and you can say you don't have the numbers, but what proportion of people do you think have 2FA enabled or inversely, how many don't have it enabled? Because that's a that's a pretty simple practice that does actually boost your, your security quite a lot. Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a good proportion. It is a, I don't have the numbers exactly to hand. And it's also hard to count because like there's a lot of accounts and some of them are created in different times and different places. Mm. I'd say that what we see is that 2FA or having some second factor of authentication, like codes being sent, is becoming much more common. And one thing we've been pushing over the last year, or I think it's the last year, is that we've been automatically enrolling people. And that's been a big push in helping along as well. But like, if we know that you have a phone connected to your account, or you know you have the account, we're actually enrolling people when we know they have that second factor to make it an automatic process. But we always believe we should have more people signed up for this. And we also think that people should use the best form of this multi-factor authentication they can. Like a security key is much stronger than a six digit code you get sent via SMS. Because to be honest, if the Russian government can trick you out of your password, there's a reasonable chance they can trick you out of that six digit code as well. But these security keys and these physical security tokens really can't be tricked in the same way by the attacker. And that actually makes them much more secure. So even if you think you're protected via these like codes via SMS, like if you're really a target and some of your listeners would be, it's time to maybe think about something even stronger like advanced protection or security keys. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's really interesting to me. You mentioned physical tokens or um, physical keys. During the initial episode where they discussed how this war room sort of came about and everybody went offline almost, is that a common practice that you see if, if a network has been compromised that the group trying to identify how that happened and how to secure it tend to go off network? I don't have as much experience here because like one of the, the good things about the Aurora incident is that we haven't had an incident <laughs> of that, that scale and yeah. we haven't had to go through that again because what they did after the Aurora incident of really making sure and hardening the network really did set things up. And I'm not the sort of person that deals with like major breaches, but major breaches are very difficult. And we have seen and seen reports of this as the, like, what do you trust when your network is totally compromised? Yeah. And I know other companies have been in that situation of the, you know, if the system that's been compromised, like if you do everything in your company based on like Slack or chat channels and the attacker gets into your Slack or chat channels, then how do you get out of that is something to have as part of your response plan. And I know that I have heard of cases from 
colleagues in other companies where the attacker has actually got onto the incident response channel and started actually, in some cases of these script kiddies or, you know, teenagers have like taunted the responders by actually getting on the incident response channel and talking to them because the network's that hacked. And we never had that, but these are the stories that I've heard around the industry. Yeah, wow. Thinking of human beings and sort of potentially humans being a weak link in the chain, one of the really funny elements of the episode was the uh, Google Plasma Globe exercise, which was done by your red team, which for our listeners was when Google's red team used a, a funny social engineering method in order to get a foot in the network of having a plasma globe that plugged into your network and um, plugged into your computer. What advice would you have for any organizations um, on protecting their networks from social engineering vectors? So there's a couple of advice. So one thing that we've learned, and I, I helped set up some of the early red teams here at Google, is that you can do a lot with awareness, but you're never going to get to the point where people aren't able to be tricked. What we learned doing these exercises is that even you've got super smart people at Google, even you've got security people at Google, you're never going to get to the point where users are going to be untrickable. Therefore, you have to have as your defenses a number of things. One is you should mitigate the damage and make it so users can't be fished. We have security keys, right, for every single employee to make it so they can't be fished out of a password that can be used elsewhere. We make it so that it's really hard for the user to do something wrong or to hand over control, and that has to be a big part of your controls more than that. The other part of it is building up a culture of notification. What we found with like red, like doing red, these red teams is that it almost became a competition for people to find the red team. So people got really used to like wanting to be the first person to spot the attack and letting the incident response team know. And this is a great thing to have our people trained in because like one day they, instead of like they're going, wow, I found the red team and going, that's not the red team, that's the real attackers. So what you want to do is not create a culture of shame where people are sort of like worried about getting things wrong, but a culture where people are trying to be out there spotting the attacks, reporting it. So you actually have the best chance of when the real things happen to be notified as quick as possible. And I think that's one of the things that I'm fairly confident about in Google is that when the real attacks come, people are jumping, you know, to be the first to report it to our incident response team because they want to, not because they're afraid of getting in trouble because if they click on the wrong thing, which I think is how too many of these sort of phishing programs sometimes get run. I love that. That's just rewarding the right behavior rather than the, the shame. But thinking of people wanting to report, Google has a bug bounty program where it essentially outsources some of the findings of bugs in the code and rewards people for uh, notifying Google of them monetarily. And potentially, as, as the show indicated, you might even become recruited by Google. But I wanted to ask, obviously, it's no surprise that governments may also be at risk of being exploited. Do you think there would be any value in governments setting up bug bounty programs for their own systems so that people can notify them if they find bugs? Yeah, I, I think generally, and we talked about this on the other topic, you want to have the right incentives, right? Like there's a lot of smart people out there that just love the technology. They love finding bugs. They love sort of like doing this interesting work. What you want to do is harness that creativity to make systems more secure, not have that energy harnessed by the sort of malicious actors who want to sell it to do like malicious things. So when we set up, a, when you set up a bug bounty program, you always want to make it the like 
come and hack all our stuff and do malicious stuff. That's not exactly how it's set up, right? It's always set up to, can you find a weakness in the system? But yeah, you should, you should be celebrating. Like if the government is putting out, say a new app, like a COVID app or whatever, you should be rewarding somebody who finds a weakness in that app. You should be finding there's like some system online and somebody sees a weakness, you should have the ability to harness that for good and to give people that kudos. Because a lot of people just want the recognition. They want the sort of like bragging rights, they want to put on their resume, you know, some money is nice, a t-shirt, whatever it is. But if you can actually make it that the people with good intent have the ability to be harnessed to make your systems more secure, any way you can do that, I think is a good thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that you mentioned the t-shirt. Obviously, the Netherlands has a bug bounty program. Uh, they don't necessarily give out money or that no one has declared, but you will receive a shirt that says, I hacked the Netherlands government and all I got was this lousy t-shirt, which is kind of that bragging rights. I really do recommend this show to everybody from all walks of life in terms of learning about security or if you're already in the field, looking at some of the things that have been established. So thanks so much for being on the podcast with us, Shane. Really appreciate your time. It's been fun. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back next week.